Well, let's give that hand clap to Jesus one more time. He's worthy of our best. He's worthy of our greatest. What an awesome, awesome God we serve. Amen. High honor again to your pastor, tremendous man of God. I've quickly recognized that he's a, he's a discipler of young ministers. And young ministers are in this place, both male and female. You're, you're blessed to have a gifting like this in your life to help bring you to where place where God is calling you to. And also, high honor to the beautiful First Lady. God bless you. Appreciate you. Uh, Bishop and Lady Wilson, we love and appreciate you. Amen. I do not have a text today, but I'm going to be preaching from this thought, how the prophetic works. <clears throat> how the prophetic works. And I will preach, and then we'll let the Holy Ghost give us inspiration to respond to the Word of God. Anybody know that faith cometh by hearing? And hearing by the Word of God. So God's going to increase our faith, give us direction, and we'll be in an atmosphere where God can do absolutely anything in this place. You believe that with me? Go ahead and clap your hands one more time. Maybe a shout yes. Yes, yes, yes. God bless you. You may be seated. For the prophetic to come to pass in your life, there absolutely must be a proper and particular response that we have to the prophetic. Some have erroneously thought that once a prophetic word is spoken, that it is the unchangeable will of God. We know by Scripture that this is not the case. Jonah was a true prophet of God. God spoke to him a specific word. Go to Nineveh and declare unto them, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Long story short, Jonah finally gets to Nineveh and preaches the word. 40 days and you guys are crisp. God is going to smoke the city. He is going to totally annihilate Nineveh. But 40 days came, 40 days went, Nineveh was not destroyed. Was he a true prophet? Yes. Did he have the prophetic word? Yes. But their proper and particular response to the prophetic word was to repent in sackcloth and ashes. And so God changed his will and his purpose and the prophetic utterance for the salvation of the city. This is not just one instant, but we see this many times. Hezekiah is the king of the land, and the prophet Isaiah comes in and tells him without doubt, get your house in order. You're going to live. You're going to die. You shall not live. Prophet leaves. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and begins to pray a prayer of remember, oh God, where I've been, what I've done, how I've been faithful. And when he gets to that place and he says, remember, God, that the dead don't praise you, but the living do. And if you give me more lives, I'll spend it to be a praiser. I'll spend it being a worshiper. And God granted that prayer. He told the prophet, go back and tell the king he's got 15 more years to live. Well, which is the right one? You're going to die and you shall not live or you got 15 more years. They are both prophetic words from God, but the proper response to the prophetic brought this change of the word of God. 
these two are more a response of repentance or a change, but the same thing holds true when Jesus goes to the synagogue of his hometown and he prophesies that what you've read in Isaiah is going to happen in the place today. Not many mighty works were done because of their lack of proper response, lack of particular response. The prophetic is shown to us so beautifully, and sometimes we keep it so general, so I'm going to bring it more specific. Jesus said in the parable of the sower and the seed that the seed is the word. So for our understanding today, the seed is the prophetic word. The sower is the servant that speaks the prophetic word, and the seed is the word of God going forth to individuals. But the seed has to fall on good ground in order for it to produce what the seed should produce. Jesus said there's some grounds that cannot receive the prophetic word, and one of them is a hardened ground. That's people's heart. The ground is likened to someone's heart or their spirit. And if their heart is hardened, it means they have no understanding, no spiritual insight, no sensitivity. So the prophetic word comes to them and it has no place to grow. And it does not produce what it should. Jesus then declares that there's a stony ground. And that's whose hearts have stones that are persecutions and hurts and afflictions and bitternesses and angers within their head. This is why it is so important for us to get all of that out of our life and make sure we forgive those that have done things to us and get our anger gone and let the Spirit bring peace because you cannot receive the prophetic word with a stony ground. Then Jesus declares there's a thorny ground, and that's like small growth, but then the cares of this life begin to choke out that small growth of the prophetic word. It's like weeds in a garden that you've got a garden and you begin to grow what will be some type of harvest. But then the weeds come and take all the strength, all the sunshine, all the fertilizer, all the water. And so the growth is stunted and doesn't bring forth what it should. These are three conditions of mankind where the prophetic will not work. It will not operate in this soil or in this position of a man or woman's heart. But then Jesus said that there's also good soil. But within the good soil, some brings forth 30%, some 60, and some 100-fold. And as you look in context, it's the same reason why you're limited in what you receive. You receive a prophetic word of 100% of what God has promised. But if you allow a little unforgiveness in your heart, a little bitterness, a little lack of spiritual understanding, it limits how much the prophetic can operate in your life. So some receive a percentage, 30-fold, 60-fold. Or a hundredfold. I want you to see that this is everywhere principled in the Word of God, what we see in this parable of the sower and the seed. Elisha is the prophet of the Old Testament, and now he is on his deathbed. 
King Joash comes to weep over him. And this is absolutely true grief because time after time, the prophet Elisha has spoken the prophetic and saved the king and saved the land. So Joash is there grieving. And from his deathbed, the gift of God begins to stir in the prophet. And he speaks to the king, preparation for the prophetic. He said, go open the window eastward, face this direction. This is a typology throughout the Old Testament of prayer. The Old Testament prophets, Daniel and others, would open their window and look toward Jerusalem, and there they would pray. This is the preparation for the prophetic is always prayer. Do not expect the prophetic to operate in your church if there's not a vibrant prayer life operating in your church. I love that Bethlehem Church knows how to pray and the prayer rooms are full before service on Sunday morning and full before service on Sunday night. There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. It still takes prayer. It still takes fasting. Somebody's going to have to step up and pay the cost for the revival, for the prophetic utterance that God has given us. So Elisha has given him instructions. We're going to have the prophetic, so open that window. Let there be a preparation, prayer, preparation for the prophetic. And then he declares unto the king, take arrows in your hands, string them in the bow. And now he gets impartation upon him as he lays his hands upon the hands of the king. And the two of them pull the bow taut and let the arrow fly. And through impartation, now the prophet can prophesy. Behold, these are the arrows of God's deliverance. God will give you victory over the enemy army that is encamped against us. And you will totally defeat Syria and drive them all the way out of the land clear to Aphek. That's the prophecy. Every time God gives you a prophecy, he gives you the opportunity to demonstrate your faith in the prophetic. He'll give you something to obey. He'll give you a work to do because faith without works is dead. So you're going to exercise your faith in the prophetic. He's going to give you a work to do. And here the prophet says, take arrows in your hand and strike them on the ground. Understand, the arrows is his prophecy. That's the prophecy of God's deliverance. And he's got to take arrows and strike them on the ground. But what you've got to realize is the battle of the mind. There's an army encamped against us. This is my weapons of defense. Why would I take what I have, little weaponry I have, and destroy it by hitting it on the ground? This is always the battle. When God begins to challenge you and speak to you of financial blessing, and there's going to be a prophetic word of financial blessing in the place today. When God begins to speak to you of financial blessing, he's immediately going to challenge you in your place of giving. And so the king hears the words of instruction to obey and to demonstrate his faith. And so he takes the arrows, and we're not clear why, but as he hits the ground, he seems to be casual in his response of faith to his prophetic word. And he hits the ground a second time, maybe a little softer. And then the third time, he's breaking his broad heads and bending his arrows. They are non-effective anymore. 
hits it the third time and stops. And the prophet is livid. Why were you so casual with your prophetic utterance? You should have hit the ground five, six, seven times and smattered the, you should have just smattered the, the arrows and then you received 100% of what was prophesied. But because you're casual in your faith to your prophetic word, you're going to receive about half. That's what happened. They, defeat, they defeated Syria the first couple of times, but then as they came again and again, they did not defeat them. The prophecy said, utterly destroy, drive them all the way out of the land clear to Aphek. And they defeated them three and four times, but could not utterly destroy them, could not drive them completely out of the land. Because their response of faith demonstrated where he was in his soul. And he received part of what is prophesied. This is everywhere in the scripture. I've experienced it over and over. I remember early in our evangelistic ministry, and this is going back to like 1850. And uh, we were traveling, and God gave us, uh, we've been on the road 26 years now. We, we've been, uh, God gave us a prophetic word that there was going to be 100 souls in a series of services, brand new people born to a church. I didn't know what church it was going to be in, so I started telling it everywhere. God's given me a prophecy. A pastor that was a friend of mine spoke to someone that I did not know at the time, a friend of his, and he said, hey, you've got the same kind of prophecy that this evangelist has. God's talking to you about a hundred soul revival. God's talking to the evangelist. So he actually introduced us thinking, you know, we serve the same God. It might be the same prophecy. We immediately had a confirmation of spirit. And we realized that God was doing something. We cleared the schedule and we began to be getting ready for this revival. This church was, uh, had had four or so get the Holy Ghost a year for several years. That was it. They ran approximately 105 and they would come up and come down and that's where they would stay most of the time. When I got there, I realized immediately that the prophetic word was going to cause shift and change in us. Because in a 105 people church, there was seats for maybe 167 people. So if you're going to have a 100 soul revival in 105, that's 205 and 167 chairs. And the 67 chairs include the one in the baptistry. That'd been a great place. Some of them might need to sit in that place all service long. I don't know. And so we began revival. The church was ready. In the very first week, we had four receive the Holy Ghost. By the end of the second week, 8, 9, 10, 12. The third week, 17, 18. The fourth week, it's in the 20s. We are well on our way to a hundred soul revival. There was some key, listen here, because I, I'll get back to this prophetically. There were some key blessings that happened in the church. When God begins to give revival and harvest, it's always accompanied with blessing to the people of God as well. You'll get salary increases and God will bless you with a new job and all of a sudden you'll sell the place that you've been trying to sell and things will start moving in your behalf because this is what Joel prophesied us that there would be a pouring forth of oil and wine blessings and after that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. This is what happens in revival. Let me just stay here while I'm feeling it so strong. God will call spies to go into the land and they'll experience the blessings. 
And when they come back, it's your chance to have faith and not unbelief and declare, hey, God gave me a blessing. He's going to give you one. He's no respected person. If we who are led into the land and are blessed come back with an evil report and say, well, yeah, but you have to realize my boss this and this situation that, and give an evil report, there'll be a curse upon us and a curse upon the spies. Already I have heard, just overheard, there are at least three, is that right, Pastor? At least three that in just the past few days in this church have received blessings of finance in their work. Increase in pay, increase in salary. God is already sending spies to see what the revival land is all about. And we need to know it's for everyone. It's for everyone. We can possess the land. God has prepared this for us. So let me get off of that rabbit trail and back to what I'm preaching how the prophetic operates. We were at this church, and it's going to have to be some shifts. If there are going to be 100 people in a 167 seat, there's going to have to be some sacrifice, more chairs put out. People are going to have to sit where they're a little more crowded. Might even have to get an overflow. All the things that might have to happen. If they averaged three person per car, they were about 30 parking lot, parking spaces short. Not too bad in the summertime, but... This was north, mid, midwest, so snow comes and they have to be in the grass. Or it's going to be a little more difficult in high heels for guys. <laughs> and we're going to have to be a little more uncomfortable. So we're going to have to make some sacrifices and some changes. The church was ready. They were hungry for revival. And we are moving forward. And now that financial blessing begins to happen, they didn't handle it well. Well, God's been speaking to me that I'm going to get a new job or a new this. So, hey, let's, let's uh, clean out the garage, paint the spare bedroom. Let's look at houses. Nothing wrong with God blessing you so that you can sell your house, move to another house, maybe a better neighborhood that you want to live in. But you've got to be careful that the cares of life and the pursuit of riches don't choke you out in the prophetic utterance. When God starts blessing us like he's blessing us, it's not time to get consumed with the things of this world and the cares of life. But just bank that for a little while and give yourself to Bible studies and to prayer and to fasting and to studies of the kingdom and watch God do what he's prophesied he'll do. Exactly when revival is prophesied, there's going to be hurts that rise up and things that people say and all this stuff is going to happen and give you a chance to get rocks in your garden. You got to get them out or you won't receive the fullness of what is prophesied. 100 soul revival. Now they're being walking around with the real estate agents instead of going to Bible study. Instead of prayer, they're cleaning the garage and doing what they have to do. And I watched a prophesied 100-soul revival stop dead at 33 souls. Now, thank God for 33 brand-new people receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. But what about the 67 more that God had already promised? Just as well as he promised the first 37, the next 63 or so are prophesied as well. 
two weeks it was done. They took their financial blessing and bought their bigger house and settled into a revival of just 33. And because of a mindset, they dwindled right back down to where they were and destroyed the prophetic word that was given to them. Elijah was that powerful prophet of old who prophesied because of the immorality and idolatry of the land that it would not rain again until he spoke. There would be no dew from the ground, no mist from the sky until he spoke. And this is a severe time for the land because it is drying up and blowing away. Can you imagine what it would look like around here if there was absolutely no rain, no dew for a year? Your lakes would be really low. But not just one year, two years. Now there are no streams flowing. Lakes are completely dry. There's no grass. There's no fruit. There's famine and there's drought. But it's not two years. It's three and a half years. you got to realize how desperate they are and how they must have been hoarding what little water they had just to survive. This is the backdrop of where Elijah begins to speak about Mount Carmel's tremendous identity. And he begins to declare that God will show himself powerful. I'm, I'm going to move through this pretty quick, so don't, don't lose a focus on here. That God would prove that he is the one true God and that false gods like Baal would have no choice but to bow down at the feet of Jehovah God. So the contest is this. Whoever prophet of Baal or prophet of God can call fire down from heaven to consume a sacrifice, then that would be the one true God. All morning long, you know the story. False prophets of Baal are crying out. But Baal cannot answer because Baal has no ears to hear. Baal has no eyes to see as they become desperate and cut themselves. Bell has no heart of compassion to see the desperation of where they're at. Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just going to say this also. We give Old Testament nations a hard time about building gods made with wood and stuff. We also have gods in our world that are made with man's hands. And what God, only God can give if you're looking for that in some other entity, it becomes a God. There are some individuals that think if we just get the right individuals in government that everything is going to be good in the land. Can I tell you that is a man-made entity and we don't even need the right ones to be in the land because God takes care of his people in the drought and in the good times as well. Some serve gods of politics and gods of government. Some serve gods of entertainment, trying to get their happiness and their joy from a professional team that's just made up of men. Some places you go, if their team loses that Sunday afternoon, there's no having church. <laughs> you either have a funeral or a healing service, that's it. Because that's where their joy comes from. But if your team wins or your team loses, you still know that that's just something that you follow, but it's not your joy. That's not your happiness. That's not your blessing. That comes from the Lord, and it's not predicated on circumstance. 
second rabbit trail. Let me get off that. And so here we have Baal and the false prophets trying to get this God that doesn't exist to rain down fire and consume the sacrifice. And finally the prophet says, enough of this nonsense. And he prepares the way for the prophetic by rebuilding the altar. Prayer is the preparation for the prophetic. Rebuilds the altar and makes it an altar of sacrifice. And then he turns to the servants. Now always there's servants in the middle of a miracle. Always servants in the middle of a miracle. He turns to the servants and tells them, go get four barrels of water. Where are they going to get water? It's been a drought for three and a half years. Whatever reservoir that is carefully guarded and hoarded, these servants went to and convinced these guards, we desperately need four barrels of water. Okay, they get the water. Bring it back to the man of God, and he says, uh, pour it on the sacrifice. You know, any Boy Scout should know that if you're going to start a fire, you need dry wood, not wet wood. But God is proving through Elijah that God does not need the circumstances to be favorable to bring to pass what he's declaring. He doesn't need a good diagnosis to heal you. He doesn't need the prognosis to be favorable to bless you. He can take situations where it looks like nothing can happen, but because he's a supernatural God, he chooses to prove himself in impossible situations. This is our God. This is our God. Four barrels of water, not enough. Go get four more barrels. Can you imagine what the servants do when they get back to the guards of the water? We need four more barrels of water. Well, what did you do in the first four? Well, the man of God poured it out. Wasteful. Worship looks wasteful to those who don't understand how good God is. But when he has picked you up out of the miry clay and put your feet on the rock to stay, when he has reached way, way back and brought you out, you can't give enough worship. There's no sacrifice too great. Once eight barrels of water is poured on the sacrifice, the prophet says, not enough. Go get four more. Twelve barrels of water until a ground that's not had rain in three and a half years is so saturated, it's holding water in a trench around the sacrifice. And now the man of God prays a simple prayer. Fifty-three words what we see in the King James Version. Basically, God, roll up your sleeve and show us your muscle. Show us how powerful you are. And fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And God proves supernaturally that he is the people of God. Can I tell you that God loves to be challenged? He's not afraid of a good challenge. If you will go all in and go all for it, God loves to prove to you supernaturally that he's your God. I challenge you in the Holy Ghost. So now fire is falling from heaven. But there's a principle of 2 Chronicles 7 and 14 that we need to understand that the prophet understood the principle. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray, that's the preparation. 
humble himself and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'd hear from heaven, heal their land. This is what needs to happen is an immoral and idolatrous people need to humble themselves, seek his face and pray and turn from their wicked ways. So Elijah gives the instruction. All of these false prophets, take them down to the river and cut their heads off. Let me just be as plain as I can. When addictions and things that easily beset you are in your life, you can't just play with it. Well, I'm going to try to do this and cut back a little here. You've got to cut the head off. Wherever that mouth is that causes it to grow, you got to cut the head off. You can't play around with pornography. You got to cut the head off. You can't play around with thoughts of immorality. You got to cut the head off. You can't play around with drugs that help reduce your addiction. You got to cut the head off. Now that he has declared that, we find the prophet doing what we understand is very valuable. He doesn't go home and sit back in his easy chair and eat chicken and just relax. But we find him taking a servant out to a place where they have a promontory to examine the horizon. And the man of God puts his face between his knees. This is a position of intercession. What, what are you doing, man of God? You've already heard the sound of an abundance of rain. You have already prophesied that it's going to happen. But the prophetic is alive in the spiritual realm. You can hear it in the spiritual realm. It's alive, it's existence. But somebody has to reach into the spiritual realm. Spiritual realm. And through intercession, travail, and birth what's alive and living in the spiritual and bring it into the fit. We need intercessors like never before because the prophecies that are strong upon us have to be reached into the spiritual realm and interceded into the physical realm. So the prophet intercedes. And after he intercedes, he turns to the servant and says, go see what changes on the horizon. To look like a storm is coming. The prophet goes carefully to where he can scan the horizon, shocked that he doesn't see anything, and comes back. And in my imagination, I'm not going to prolong this one either. You know the story. In my imagination, he was somewhat like this, apologetic. I believe, man of God, you heard the Lord. I, I believe what you prophesied, but I'm telling you, there ain't no change. Today looks just like yesterday. I still have pain in my body. There's still bills that I have to pay. There's still unrest in my family. It looks like my children are further away from God than they are. It's no change, man of God. You prophesied, I interceded, there's no change. But the man of God is not casual with his prophetic word. And so he intercedes the second time. And when there's no change, he intercedes the third time. And when there's no change, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Not casual. I'm convinced if he stops with one or two or three, he gets a partial response from heaven. 
The heaven prophecy is an abundance of rain. That's more than they will need. And if he stops short with his faith, he gets a percentage. After the seventh time, the servant is sent to look. And in my imagination, the servant has seen this before. He knows what the horizon looks like. He hardly scans it. He goes back to tell the prophet, and then he stops. Did I see something out of my peripheral? Scanning it closely, maybe taking out his little telescope there. Checks it out, and then he comes back to the prophet, almost like this. Now, man of God, don't get too excited because there's a change, but it ain't, it ain't much. All there is is a cloud, and it's only like a man's hand. And when the prophet hears that, he's leaping to his feet, and we find him out running the chariots of Ahab. Why? Because his job is only to make it crown in the physical. He doesn't have to have the fulfillment of the prophecy happen. Once it's present in the physical, his job is done. And what God has begun, God will fulfill a good work within us. And when he sees just the first signs of it in the physical, he knows that the burden has been done. The intercession has been effected. We walk away from our prophetic utterances because we don't have understanding of how the prophetic works. All this garbage that you can see on YouTube and different religious channels try to tell us a seed is something that you throw in the mail with a $1,000 check and you become a millionaire next week. That can happen. God can do the impossible. But he's more concerned about our soul than just us getting rich. He wants us to prosper as our soul prospers. So the seed kingdom is absolutely truth, but it's this seed of the parable of the sower and the seed. Yes, the kingdom is a seed ministry, but it's got to fall on good ground. There's got to be proper and particular response. When you get your word to obey, you got to go over the top and respond, and you've got to intercede it into the physical. That's what seed ministry preaching really is about. Last story. Can I got time for one more story? How about if I don't do any rabbit trails with this one? <laughs> Marriage in Cana of Galilee, one of the most amazing revelatory stories, and it seems so out of place. Jesus is doing his first miracle here. This is the precedence and the foundation of his miraculous ministry. So get the picture. He's there with his disciples. His mama is there, and they're celebrating this reception of a marriage that is happening. And then after a few days, as their custom was, several days of feasting, Mary comes to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. <laughs> I think that we don't see this traditionally in the true picture of what's happening. This isn't the Virgin Mary coming to the creator of the world and saying, they have no wine. No, this is mama talking to her boy. <laughs> I can remember times like that when I was growing up, maybe a teenager lounging on the couch. That's what te teenagers do. And mom would come in and she'd say, Tim, the trash needs to be taken out. And so I would say, that is great information, mama. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to log that in the memory file and I'm going to 
get a committee of my siblings and we're going to discuss and table this for another day or two. No, <laughs> of course not. Because mom wasn't giving me information. She was telling me without telling me, get your lazy self off the couch and do your job. And because it was my mom, it was like I shouldn't even have to tell you. You know what your job is. Get on it. I felt the Holy Ghost on that one a little bit. Yeah, I've got kids and grandkids. I understand that. And so this is mama talking to boy. And it's, it's, it's like this. One of you young men, come up here and help me. Just, just stand right here. It's, it's like this. When Mary says to Jesus, she says, uh, they have no wine. You should see his face. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you, Bob. Like, what are you going to do about it? This is your problem. Now it's yours. And Jesus responds to her in a way that, you know, some of us husbands have used this out of context, and I guess I'm going to destroy it for us. As he turns to her and says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? That's, that's out of context. The word woman here is the Greek word that's used mostly in speaking of a spouse. It talks about an individual that has become so close, they're one flesh. When he calls her woman, he speaks to her even as his own flesh. He's saying to her, there is nobody in this world closer to me than you. You loved me when nobody else knew who I was. You weaned me, you brought me, you carried me. He said, we are close. But then he said, what do I have to do with thee? Which means it don't matter how close we are. You can't pull strings on this one, mama. You can't get favors with this one, no matter how much I love you and how much you love me. And he tells her why. Because my time is not yet come. I love that. But look at the response of Mary. She goes back to the prophetic utterance of Gabriel. She goes back to the Old Testament prophets that declared that when the Messiah would come, a government of peace would be upon his shoulder. Healing would be in the garments or the borders of his garment. That there would be strength and miracles, signs and wonders. And she turns with an over-the-top faith to the servants. Always servants in a miracle. And she says... I don't care what he says to do, you get on it, lickety-split. Whatsoever he saith, doeth it. And with that kind of faith operating, when she turned and loosed her faith for the servants, Jesus reaches into the future where the miraculous ministry is going to happen, and he pulls it into the present because of an over-the-top faith. Can I tell you how much God loves faith? He'll move aside dispensations. He'll move aside all kind of situations. If somebody has that kind of faith, it'll reach into your future and pull it into your present. Jesus sees that faith and he turns to the servants. Here's the word to obey. And he says, go fill the water pots. There's six water pots there for purification. The Bible says that they are containing two to three firkins apiece. Is that crazy? Two to three firkins. Yeah, I didn't know either, so I looked it up. <clears throat> A firkin is about eight gallons. Two firkins would be about 18, 16, right in that area. It's a little over. 27 to 30 gallons for three firkins. 
But when the Bible says the servants responded to the words, they're the ones that are going to have to dip that water and take it to the governor of the feast. And there's no way that they're going to do this unless they believe that the miracle working power is on him. And they feel it not two firkins, not three firkins, feel it to the brim. Which gives you a picture of water molecules holding together until it's above the brim, over the top with their response of faith. And now Jesus reaches into the future and says, draw out now and give to the governor of the feast. Governor of the feast has no idea what has happened, but even he is talking past, present, and future when he speaks about the quality of the wine. But the Bible says this, the governor didn't know, but the servants knew where the miracle came from. This gives me great hope that even if I don't understand the miraculous and the supernatural, if I'll keep a spirit of a servant, I'll begin to get wisdom to understand and to know how the supernatural and the miraculous operate. Hundred and sixty-two gallons is what was turned from water into wine. Hundred and sixty-two gallons, way abundant above what they could ever need, and it was the highest quality because that's just how Jesus works. More than enough and the highest quality. And if it's ever less, it's not his fault or the prophetic fault. But we can trace it to a soul, to a soil, or to a heart, or to a faith that does not respond over the top to the prophetic word. This is how the prophetic operates. This church is so pregnant with the prophetic. I mean, you are fat and waddling, I'm just going to tell you. You... The prophetic is upon you so strong. So many ministers in this place know that God has spoken to me. The prophetic is on me. There's ministry. There's calling. This church knows that there's a revival of backsliders. You know that there's a harvest of this city and around this city. You know that God has spoken. You've got a prophetic utterance and you're carrying it. God is looking for someone to intercede what's already in the spiritual and travail to bring it into the physical. Let your prayer take you to a deeper level until you are fetal position crying out without words and groaning and interceding. And the faith that is in this place needs to be stretched and demonstrated by your response to the prophetic word. So whatever prophetic word that God has given you, stand with me. Whatever prophetic word that God has given you, if you got a true prophetic word, he's going to challenge you. He's going to challenge you. Please hear. He's going to challenge your faith in the place of your scarcity. Well, God said, I'm going to have a new job. And now he's saying, we'll empty out your wallet in the offering plate. Well, if you don't believe you're going to get a raise, it's going to be difficult. But if you believe it, God's given an abundance. You don't need that last 20. If you need a healing in your body, he'll challenge you in your mental state, your emotional state, and your physical state. 
Where's the worshiper? Where's the praiser? Well, I'm not feeling good. He'll challenge you in your scarcity so that you can demonstrate your faith in the healing and the miracle. God will allow the enemy to bring trials and temptations and struggles and all these things that can fulfill your soul so that you're not, your soil, so you're not ready for the prophetic because he wants to see you demonstrate your faith to even if it's not, even if I was wronged, I'm not going to let that stay in my heart. I'm getting that out. I'm getting that anger, that hurt. I'm getting that out. Because if you have that kind of faith, over-the-top faith, then you'll receive 100% of what is prophesied. I have lived in apostolic Pentecostal realms all my life. I was just an infant the first time I was taken to church by my new convert mother. I rolled out from under the pew at five years old, low enough to hear the evangelist preach, and went down to the altar and got the Holy Ghost. I had no idea what he preached, but I felt the presence of God, so I went down and got the Holy Ghost at five. Raised in church, had some years at backslid, but I know apostolic Pentecostal, it's my life. And I'll tell you what I've observed before ministry as a kid and then even after ministry is we settle for so much less. Because our faith is not strong. And we're afraid to step out on a limb. We're afraid to go to the edge of the cliff. We're afraid to go all in. We're afraid to commit 100% because we've got to have that last 20. It's a lack of faith. It's a demonstration of a partial, immature faith. Twice on the Sea of Galilee... The disciples go into storms. Both times, Jesus knew. One time he's in the boat. One time he's not in the boat. But the first time they go across the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes, he chides them for their small, immature faith. What? We're talking about the weather. Tornadoes and hurricanes and you think I don't have faith? It's the kind of faith God wants us to have. And the second time he had to put them through the test to try their faith, he wasn't even in the boat with them. Knew it was coming. He could see it from the mountaintop where he went to pray. Let him go out in the middle of the storm. Somewhere in our experience with God, we have got to become so settled, so sure that we believe this 100%. That when the prophetic comes forth, we wrap it to our soul. We begin to receive it 100%. When God gives us words to obey, we follow it, go over the top, and we demonstrate our faith. And then we see 100%. I cannot tell you how many revivals have dropped short at 30% or 60%. And we don't even like to talk about that. We talk about how great the 120 that got the Holy Ghost, but the 300 that was prophesied, we don't speak about. We talk about the miracle that happened here, how God took the pain away. But too often we walk away from our miracle and we still deal with things in our physical body and symptoms. Don't have time to qualify everything tonight. In this altar, those that are already gathered, You've come with your steps of faith. This is what's going to happen. I'm oftentimes when God 
begins to deal with me about a church service, he starts with the altar for me. And then I work my way backwards to where I start. If I know where God wants us to end up, then I can work my way back. And my sermon starts to get us back to that place where God has let me know we would be in this altar. So oftentimes I have a word of wisdom for those that are in the altar or a specific direction or a specific prophecy. But I need to tell you today, whatever he says to do, go over the top. And if you've got a prophetic utterance of finance, when he challenged you in your scarcity, go over the top. I, I dare, I double dog dare you. I dare you to put our supernatural God to the test today. We have become a people confused about the prophetic because we don't know how it operates biblically. Some have even turned off the prophetic and don't want it to operate in their church services because they don't understand. There's not understanding and wisdom concerning Paul is very instructive to us that it's not the will of God that we're ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. So that demands of us to study, to pursue, to understand, to know so that we're not confused when God makes us pregnant with promise and revival and purpose. If you know that this church is poised on the edge of a harvest revival, just throw your hand up. That's the easy response of faith, okay? Now, God's going to lead you to people this week that are already the harvest. Hey. How many of you believe the testimony that God has blessed some of our brothers and sisters with financial blessing? How many of you believe that he can do the same for you? Lift both your hands if you have that faith. By the authority of the word of God, I loose a financial blessing upon you. Your faith will allow you to receive according to the dimension of your faith and the dimension of your purpose. New jobs, salary increases, blessings of raises on the job. Receive it in Jesus' name. Now listen to me. God's going to challenge some of you to go talk to your boss. You know God's already spoken that he's going to give you a financial blessing. Some of you are going to have to make a shift and a change because God's dealing and moving with you. You know God's already spoken. We see this in the scripture and I think we misinterpret it. I'm, I'm done. We see Jesus saying, you want your healing? Well, here it is. According to your faith, even so, let it be done unto you. You, you know what we do today? We, we do that as a cop-out. And we say, well, according to your faith. Like, it's not my problem. I pray for you, and it's according to your faith. <laughs> That's not what is happening. Jesus is saying, here's your promise. Here's your prophecy. And as to the same degree of your faith, to that degree you receive it. If that's 30% or 60% or 100%, according to your faith, to the same degree of your faith, even so, let it be unto you. This is 
how the prophetic works. I don't think I've ever done this, but I feel like there needs to be just a short season of travail that moves across this congregation. Somebody that knows there's something happening in the spiritual realm. Get a hold of your promise and start praying in the spirit. Somebody pull that family revival into the physical. Somebody pull that financial blessing into the physical. I hear it. I see it. I know it's there. Jesus name. Jesus name. Jesus name. Jesus name. Halaburus atalaburukorada. Ishatarodokotolaburadohaya. My beautiful sister holding this little child. Let her know I'm speaking to her. Hey, my sister, I'm speaking to you. Is that okay? What's your first name? Jada. Jada. Jada, as I saw you in this altar praying earlier, I saw the need that you have for favor in your life. And I feel like that favor is even legal favor. I think it's favor of individuals that have the ability to make choices for you and your loved ones. I, I feel like God is trying to speak to you that he's big enough to move the hearts of kings. He's big enough to move the hearts of any individual that if you would give it all to him, favor for you in the place. I know that you have a relationship with God, and I also know you're dealing with a lot of condemnation because some of the choices that you made recently and that you're not proud of. But God is saying, forget all that. Jump in with both feet and see if he won't bless your life and direct your life and give favor to you. Uh, somebody in your past knew how to pray. Somebody in your past knew how to get a hold of God. And I feel the prayers of someone that's even gone that is still resounding from heaven upon your life today. Not because of your goodness, but because of that prayer. Favor is upon you today. God's got something special for you, Jaden. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, speak to us and challenge our faith because we know that we are expected. We know that you have spoken. We are in the prophetic. So challenge our faith and we'll demonstrate. So as I pray now, whatever he tells you to do, Maybe he's going to tell you to go to somebody. Maybe he's going to tell you you need to worship and praise. 
Maybe he's going to tell you to find a place on this altar to give sacrifice. I don't know what he's going to tell you. Don't do what I say, but whatever he says to do, hear his voice and do it. Go over the top and watch him fulfill his prophetic utterance. Would you lift your hands all over the place? I'm getting out of the mic. Challenge us, Father. Challenge us, Father. We are full of faith. We are full of excitement. We are ready. Speak to us. We will obey. We'll demonstrate our faith by striking the arrows until they're completely gone. We'll demonstrate our faith by pouring out what is precious of water. We'll demonstrate our faith by giving everything, by going all out. If you challenge us right now, Father. All right, the ministry is loosed as we begin to play and sing. As you're praying, whatever you feel in the Holy Ghost, do it. Somebody might need to go pray for somebody. You might need to worship with some. Whatever you need to do, what God says to do, do it now and go over the top. Come on, intercessors, help us for a little while. Come on, praisers and worships, help us with our faith. Come on, altar workers, use your gifting. Operate in power and anointing. You are a powerful church. Operate in your anointing. Woo! Come on, young person, there's an intercession upon you. Give yourself to intercession for your generation. Hey, <laughs> 